From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another Stuck at Home special of Hollywood Unscripted. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today our guest is an Oscar-nominated, BAFTA-winning, and now Emmy-nominated screenwriter, playwright, and creator. Tony McNamara, it is so great to have you. Welcome. Hi, Jenny. It's a pleasure. So you're currently in Australia, and it is first thing in the morning for you, isn't it? It's uh, 7 a.m., yeah. So apologies if I'm slow to start. The specials are called Stuck at Home because obviously we're stuck in quarantine, we're stuck at home. And so we kind of start out with a check-in of how has quarantine been for you? I've been pretty lucky, really. I mean, we were making a show in Italy and London, and it all happened, and then we kind of came back to Australia. And we've been in... Perth, Western Australia, which hasn't had a case in 120 days. So, oh, wow. I mean, I had to quarantine twice because each state in Australia, when you, you have to quarantine if you change state. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been fun. My kids like it because I'm around all the time. <laughs> but it's been good. I mean, Perth's good because there's no cases. The, there's very little restrictions. and It's pretty much the perfect place to quarantine. Yeah, so in a way we came here for family reasons, but we got sort of lucky in coronavirus way. Yeah. So I want to jump back to the beginning of your storytelling. Am I correct in that you didn't actually start writing until you were in your 20s because you worked in finance? Yeah, worked is a strong term. (laughs) Bumbled my way through. Uh, Yeah, I didn't really start till I was 22 or 23 or something. Yeah, I worked in finance in Australia and London for a bit and was incredibly bad at it, which didn't seem to harm my career at all but yeah I did that for a few years and then traveled around did an Australian thing where you just go to Europe and do nothing for a year to write a passage and so I did that and in that time I was always sort of liked books was my big thing when I was a kid and then I just saw a lot of plays in London and started to think oh maybe I could do that was how I sort of foolishly got there. Did you then just write or did you take playwriting classes? Well, I didn't really want to be a playwright. I kind of wanted to be a novelist. And then I went and did this one-year course at school in Australia and they kind of had poetry or playwriting and I didn't think I could do poetry. So I was like, begged them to let me into playwriting. And as soon as I started writing scenes, I sort of instinctively sort of went, oh, this feels like me, you know. I mean, I did actually fail the course, (laughs) but not because of the playwriting. I can't really spell and I can't grammar, whatever that means. (laughs) I can't even speak grammar, <laughs> let alone write grammar. I think playwriting, as soon as I started doing that, that's what I wanted to do. From there, I just started writing plays and I was drifting in and out of finance and waiting tables and becoming a chef. All the things. Debt collecting <laughs> and just lots of weird jobs while I was writing plays, yeah. Did your first play get picked up by the Sydney Theatre Company? Yeah, yeah, it did. I was lucky in that they have a playwright, I think they still have a playwrights conference, which is mostly young playwrights. Everyone goes to like Canberra and you spend three weeks drinking heavily and really good people come and direct your workshop of your play. And I was lucky because I got Michael Gow, who's one of our great playwrights, and he took me under his wing and was really great because even though he directed the workshop, he's a great playwright. So he was really instrumental in then getting it to Sydney Theatre Company and getting it on. So I was lucky that it's like my first play and I was like 25. What was it about? Uh, it was about a kid who had these horrible <laughs> sort of hippie baby boomer parents who comes out of a mental institution expecting them to be home but they've gone on holiday and left him just notes and food around the house and inspiring aphorisms and it's like a generation gap kind of comedy, I guess. Now, did that also get you into film school? 
Yeah, basically, yeah. The place, yeah, because I hadn't really written any screenplay or anything to get into film school. I think my brothers and I hastily made some, like, terrible three-minute short film and put it with the play, but the play was kind of what got me in, yeah. And then what did you study at film school specifically? I studied screenwriting, yeah. Australian film school is, like, very small and at the time you studied everything, which was what was good about it because there's only 15 kids in your year. There's like two screenwriters, two directors, two DOPs, two editors too. And so then you rotate through all the disciplines. So you spend two months screenwriting and then you go, you have to, like I edited films and documentaries and camera was just a bust for me because I can't think like that. But you were in all the departments and really learned all the aspects of it, which was what was good about that school. I love that you went to school in your mid-20s because so much, at least in America, we're told if we don't know what we're doing at 18, we're probably not going to make it. That's right. Yeah, they probably still have it. But at the film school, you had to be, I think 22 was the youngest you could go. And I think it's because they want people who really love it. They had a whole philosophy about why the film school was like that. I think it was kind of a good philosophy. That's kind of the same as having to learn all of the dynamics of filmmaking because you need life experience. You need to know what everybody else's job on set is. Yeah, I think so. It was a really lucky break to get in there because there were really good teachers and lots of people I still know who I went to film school with. And then out of film school, though, you went back to writing plays for the Sydney Theatre Company or was that all throughout? Yeah, then I threw away film school. Uh, <laughs> I think during film school, maybe the First play went on when I was in second year and then I wrote another play which they put on the next year which did really well and then they kicked it up the next year to their main stage season and then they took me on as playwriting residence. So the playwriting thing was happening in tandem with film school. Mm -hmm. So I got out of film school and I was like, oh, do I really want to keep waiting tables? And then they offered me residency as playwright where you get paid and my play was going on and so I was like, I'll just do that. Sounds like a good choice. Yeah, then I seemed to have a play on every year or two years there for a long time. And one of those plays was a play called The Great about Catherine the Great. It certainly was, yeah. And that's what sparked this Hulu TV show that you now have called The Great. You wrote for an actress named Robin Nevin. Yeah, Robin was like head of the company and she's one of our great actors. And she was like, I keep programming your plays. So you should uh, write me one. And then I was looking around trying to think what I could write for her. Then I just stumbled upon, I think it was like three minutes of something, documentary about Catherine the Great or maybe I read something. I'm still not even sure, but it was just, I was just like, oh, I've never done that. And I'd written four contemporary plays and I was like, I'll try and do that. In the end, she didn't do the play. Oh no, She went and did something else. But she did get it. You know, her and she left the company and Kate Blanchard and Andrew, her husband, took over and then they produced it. Was it hard writing for someone who then you had to have another actress play the role? Not really. I mean, even if I know the actor who's going to play it, for some reason I can't think about them when I write it. Like I have some other voice in my head about that is the character and I don't really think in the actor's voice, you know. So, no, I mean, I was disappointed because I really wanted her to do it, but, you know, I didn't go, oh, no, the play's ruined. Yeah. And then how long after that did you turn it into a screenplay? Gillian Armstrong, great Australian director, saw it and wanted it. And I think I'd written a screenplay a few years before, but I'd sort of stopped. I'd sort of been mostly in theatre and dabbling a little bit in TV. Working with her, I wrote the screenplay and it was fun and I had a good time, but it was probably two years after It was a while before they optioned it. Jumping into The Favourite, Deborah Davis had done a pass of a dramatic version of The Favourite and Yorgos was looking to change the tone and that's why he found you? Yeah, basically. I mean, he liked the story, but it was a very straight rendering, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. which isn't really his thing. He was just reading lots of screenplays and trying to find a writer he felt like would get what he wanted to do and had a voice that he kind of got. Now, when you started doing passes on it, did you continue to work with Deborah or was her pass number one and then you took it from there? Yeah, because I didn't ever really met Deborah until like uh, well after the film was made, you know, because we sort of re-engineered the whole thing and got rid of the history and changed what we wanted. <laughs> Screw history. Yeah, we were like, we want a history, let's read a book. Yeah. And then he and I spent, you know, a long time working on it together. And while you were working on it, you started the pilot to the great. Is that correct? I don't know. Around the time we were shooting The Favourite, I was thinking about TV and what I wanted to do. And I'd been writing some pilots and stuff, but I know Marion McGowan, who's been exec producer with me on the grade, she was the original optioner of the film. So she'd always kept me going on it when I'd be like, I think we're done. Because I felt like I couldn't tell the story properly in that time. So my wife was like, well, you love TV. It should be TV. So as always, she was right. I think I heard you say in another interview that you hadn't really seen how the show would click as a whole until you saw Nicholas Holt acting in The Favourite. Not not that I couldn't see it click. I was just aware that casting, I mean, I just always think if you cast well, and I think we'd thought about in the film version we'd been casting and trying, and that was always a role, even though we'd found some great Catherines when we were attaching people to the film version, I'd never found Peter. I never was that gung-ho to make it because I was always like, that has to work. And he's got to be comic and not malicious but crazy. And and then I saw Nick in rehearsal. We did three weeks rehearsal for The Favourite and I think after a couple of days with Nick, I was like, well, he can do it. He's amazing. He really gets what the material is and he's so brilliant. After knowing that you wanted him, what was the process like? You go up and tap him on the shoulder after a rehearsal and say, I have another project for you or? I knew I wanted Al as well. So I'd sent them both the screenplay. I said, would you guys be interested in this? And then they really loved it. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of went, I think I want to do it as TV though. And then they were really excited about that idea because Nick hadn't done TV in a long time. Al had never done TV. So it sort of worked as simply as that. I just sent it to both of them and had a chat with each and, They were both really into it straight away, you know. So Elle Fanning plays Catherine, and she's also an EP on the show as well. Yeah. What was her role in the development of the story and the character? How did she partake in that? Basically, she came and took it out with me when I pitched it. Like, I'd sent the pilot out, and there were networks interested, and then she talked about why she loved it and why it was a good story for young women. But she had input in costume and just every day. Like, I think the good thing about Elle is she's got a great eye, and I think for both Nick and her, they really know what show we're making. Mm-hmm. that's half the battle when you're trying to make something a little bit different because the tone of the show is so specific and what I wanted to look like I was really specific and she knew all of that and so she was always like on those things you know it's like and then she would have these great ideas like the pink dress in the finale was her idea and A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the one. The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. 
And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. The rest of the cast is fantastic. You probably had to search far and wide to find these people. What was the casting process like? It was sort of easy in a way because it was a tone that I knew they had to be great dramatic actors, but also their first instinct had to be comic. Mm -hmm. But they also had to have dramatic chops, I guess. So most of them are really experienced theatre actors. I sort of slightly looked for people who'd done a lot of theatre they're all very good comic actors who really can turn on the drama when you need it. They just play the truth all the time, but they know where the comic truth is and they know where the dramatic truth is, and I never have to explain any of that. They just instinctively get it. You didn't bring them back, like, hundreds of times to make sure they could nail it? No. I think maybe they did one and maybe they did a callback. I'd always just spend an hour having coffee with them because you're with people a long time, so you want to like them. For your writer's room, you've talked about how you view this show as a contemporary story. How did you relate that to your writers and get everyone on the same page to tell this story? It was hard, I guess. I'd already written two episodes and we had shot the pilot. So they had the pilot to watch because we shot the pilot and then we got green relit. In that period, I had to deliver like a pilot and the second episode. So I'd basically done that. And then they all read the play and various versions of the screenplay. And I staffed the room trying to think of different aspects that each writer would bring. So some of the writers knew why they were coming in a way. They knew they were there because they had a real angle on contemporary politics and a real deep knowledge. Mm-hmm. And there was just younger voices than me because it's a 21-year-old woman who's driving the show. And so there had to be voices that were strongly that voice. And then there were older writers who were bringing a structural thing and an experience to bear on a show that was totally trying to ride a bit of a line. So it was just that. It wasn't a big room. It's maybe four or five people. I was always like, if we're plotting a story halfway through, I'll always go, now give me the contemporary version of that story we're telling. Is it true that you had a whiteboard of trivia about that time period? Yeah. Would you guys just kind of throw a dart and pick one? Or how would you go about that? Amelia does a lot of the research and the other writers too, but they sort of, not so much about Catherine, it's just like the era Almost dumb shit and funny stuff about the way people thought or weird details, like the lemons and the contraception. The and all lemon like, thing is bizarre. <laughs> yeah, that, that was all true. So even though I'm not like a massive slavish to history, clearly we do have a list of stuff that I think suits the tone of the show that we kind of, as we story, we kind of go, oh, what would that be, you know? Yeah. Was the pregnancy test made up or was that a thing they did? Pregnancy test is true as well. What? In fact, in the 90s, like... Some I don't know whether it was like Columbia or something did the actual test, and it's ninety two percent effective for predicting pregnancy. That's wild. Yeah, history's the weird gift that keeps giving. I have to say, there's so much absurd, delightful detail in this show. When you're thinking, because you write a lot of comedy, do you think in terms of like what will be funny, or how do you find the humor in what you're doing? Well, I think the characters are well built. So I'm just like, write character, don't write jokes. We never consciously write jokes. But there's always like, if we've got a story, I'll be like, where's the comic edge in that story? Like, how are we telling that story so that it's our show? Mm -hmm. In a way, that's probably the most I do in terms of comic drive is the way we're telling the story. I don't really individually go, 
are the jokes funny or whatever, you know, because script-wise I write 90% of it. So I just assume if I'm true to my characters and my actors, because they've got to perform it and I never want them reaching for comedy and they know that. So I can't reach for comedy in the scripts and then go, but don't reach for comedy. I can't remember, but I used to have this thing and maybe it was Matt Williams who wrote Roseanne. I think he had make it real, make it funny, but make it real first. So we sort of try and do that, even though it's real to our world. Mm -hmm. We sometimes do go, let's tell the story differently because it's not funny enough, for sure. On the flip side, it's such a violent story, but it's also so casual in the violence that it doesn't feel overwhelming. Yeah, that, I mean, I suppose for, into showing the writers what sort of show, I did have a bunch of things that the world was, and one of the first ones was casually violent. And I know Elle said she was nervous before doing this because she doesn't do a whole lot of comedy. Yeah, yeah, she was quite nervous. She didn't let it on too much. The story is narratively a drama and execution-wise a comedy. And it had to work as a drama and I knew she could make it work as a drama in an amazing way. I'd seen her in Ginger and Rose and she had this charm and funniness that I thought would come out if she was given the right material. But it does take a sort of fearlessness that she hadn't expected, like watching Nick or Doug or Belinda, you know, just go for it. She really began to revel in that. And she really found her place with the comedy more and more as the show goes on. And, and her comedy is a different comedy from everyone else, but she's really great at it. Yeah, that's why it's special, because she's supposed to be different from everybody else. Exactly. She did amazingly well, because she's a really brave actor. and She just wants to be better, and she's just an ultimate professional. I mean, talking about bravery as an actor, at least the sex in the show is rampant, which it could be a really intimidating thing to look at as an actor. But it's interesting because you never put sex for sex sake in the show. Everything has a purpose and it's telling a story. And I guess I just want to hear more about your process with that, if that's not (laughs) a weird question. It's not a weird question. I mean, I had a view, obviously. Originally, I was like, well, there'll be a fair bit of sex because everyone's locked in a giant apartment building drinking vodka all day. (laughs) I was just conscious of like all the sex being storytelling and being character driven and dynamic driven. Like the dynamic between Peter and Catherine and the purpose of their sex becomes getting a baby. And the fact they have very little physical connection and then Georgina and Peter is a different thing and then Catherine and Leo had to be a very different thing, you know. So it was all like the sex should be storytelling. It's not just generic TV sex, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was really came out of that. And then the actors were totally up for that idea, you know. They sort of liked the idea that they weren't just being told, go have sex. They all, <laughs> you know, it was very specific what they had to do. Even specific scenes like Charity, who plays Georgina, would ring me and we'd talk about this particular sex scene because of what's happening in the story with Peter. Should it be different and should she be, like, take a different position? So it was all very, like, how the characters were and in their dynamic at that particular point. And also on a show like this, I was just probably obsessive about tone. Mm -hmm. I was very much like everything's got a tone. It's the way everything happens. So I can't then drop the tone on the sex. I can't just then go to generic tone, you know. Yeah. I didn't think it was a big deal, but everyone asked me about it. I think everybody asks about it because it's done so well. Sorry, Hollywood, but I'm exhausted by sex scenes. I think they're, <laughs> they can be incredibly obnoxious. And in this, you'd stripped away the shame of it. It was all just fun and character building. I watched this show with my parents. So, you know, I'm sitting between my mom and my dad <laughs> watching sex all over a castle or whatever that is. And it's just fun. 
So I think that's why people bring it up so much. I'm glad it worked. We thought all the sex scenes were really fun. It was the easiest sex scenes I've ever seen have because the actors were very much coming from character. They weren't just being told, now look hot, look like you're into it, you know, like porn directing or something. It was very much like this is just another element in a story that you guys are telling. Speaking of your characters, what is your favorite aspect of the characters that you write in this show? I mean, I think that they all are very human, I guess, is my favourite aspect. They're all more than one thing, you know. There's no one in the show I think is a bad person, which is probably just how I come at things as a writer. I think people behave badly and I think characters in the show are driven by things that are fucked up, but I I never write as if someone's a terrible person. And so I think that helps the actors because it's easy for them to find a humanity in their characters and it gives me more latitude as a writer because... There's more range for someone like the Archbishop. It's easy to make him the bad guy and he sort of is, but he's sort of not. There's a lot of elements to him that aren't that. So I kind of like that about the characters. It just looks like a really fun set to be on. But I did have a question. The constant smashing of the glasses, was that hell for your production designer? (laughs) No, I don't think so. I think there were much worse things for Francesca than the glasses. I mean, I remember in the pilot we ran out at the wedding feast someone was off trying to buy real ones and oh, we were like you can't have real ones no i think francesca had a lot more bigger problems than the glasses like what oh no just the build i mean she built that entire palace in a studio in london you know i'm like now we're torturing people <laughs> and we need to build that now we're doing this she's an amazing production designer she just loves it but it's a big job of that kind of thing on the great What was the feeling of the first day on set compared to the feeling of the last day on set? (laughs) Well, the sets were finished on the last day, so that (laughs) that would be the main feeling. The first day of the series was quite chaotic because we were rushing to get in and the sets were being built around as we started shooting. So it was very, like, crazy chaos. But I remember the first time I was watching Nick and Al together, I knew they knew each other and they'd worked together, but I wasn't sure how they'd go with the material together and how the chemistry would be, and they just clicked, and I was like, oh, after the first day, they had seen the actors work. I was like, well, they're all amazing. So that takes some pressure off. You know, I was kind of like by the end of the first few days, I was like, they all work great, and they just felt like an ensemble really, really quickly. Like they just felt like the world of the show didn't take long to bed in. On some shows it does take a while to like everyone to find their way into the show. But I think with these guys, they really didn't take long. And that saved us in a lot of ways because we were struggling with set building and a bunch of different things. And they just came in and they're always on their game as they do all the time. They just make life really easy because they're so good. And then the last day, what was the last scene you shot? Uh, the last scene we shot was, I'm pretty sure it was like some kind of scene with all the, I don't, it didn't end up in the show, <laughs> I think, because it was a scene we bumped and bumped down the road and we were like trying to do it in half light in Italy. Everyone really just wanted to finish and go to the disco. And, oh, no, the last scene was in the theatre, actually. I totally remember because all the actors were in Italy for our final and then they all came and we were in this amazing 16th century theatre, which is in the palace, which we shoot where the coup plotters go all the time and all the actors and everyone got up in the boxes and watched the uh, final scene it was great and then we went to a Italian disco with 400 people crammed into a room for 200 forgetting the fact there was COVID-19 in northern Italy 
when did you wrap shooting? Uh, February 23. Oh, wow. So we left and they shut down Northern Italy the day after we left. No one at the time was particularly, none of the Italian crew were phased. We were like, I think there's, I don't know, I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah. I'm glad you guys are all okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you had to turn the show around really fast then. Yeah, it was a really quick turnaround. We had to post the uh, last two episodes in about seven weeks. Recently, you were picked up for your second season. Congratulations. Thank you. How did you find out? Did they call you? Do they email you? What was that moment? Uh, yeah, they call you and my time difference is weird. So I usually wake up and there's an email going, call us. So I called and they were like, yeah, I'm all right, let's do it again. It's that thing of like you're really waiting for the call and then, and then you start getting dates of when you have to do it by and then you're like, that's great. We're shooting when? <laughs> Ten scripts? Writing script? What? Okay. Did they give you dates that you have to do it by? Yeah, we've got shooting dates. And... How do you do that during coronavirus times? I don't know. Optimistically, I suppose. We just prepare as if I just get the room together and start writing scripts as fast as possible. Are you going to be able to do an in-person room with your writers? Not at the moment. We've done three weeks not in person. I'm not a fan of the Zoom room at all. So I'm toying with a couple of writers who are Sydney-based, so I might do a couple of weeks with them and Zoom in our American writers. But, yeah, it's hard. The Zoom room is really difficult. It is. Not to draw a weird parallel, but I feel like screens take our creativity away. But you always write your first drafts of your script by hand. Is that true? I certainly do. Got thousands of these. Episode one. (laughs) You must get a lot of hand cramps. I mean, not really. I don't know. I'm just used to it. It's too traumatic staring at a blank screen. Like, oh, now it has to be good. Whereas I never even think about it being good if I'm just writing it on scraps of paper. Is it the overwhelmingness of the screen? Or is it like for me, I feel like staring at a screen zaps my energy and I don't want to make things anymore? If that makes sense. <laughs> something like that. But there's something romantic about paper, yeah. I think it's just easier. It feels like you're really making a decision once you type it up. It's just those weird writer superstition. You know, it's like it has to be yellow pads. It's ridiculous. But <laughs> even before I came to Perth and was in Sydney and I was panicked, going, what if they don't have my yellow pads there? As we wrap up, I just want to ask, what does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling? Well, for me, it's like everything. I can't imagine a life without it, you know. I think it's it's more important than ever in a strange way, storytelling, I think. I think the world's a pretty weird place. So I feel like stories help us make sense of it and there's a lot to make sense of at the moment. For me personally, I can't, I don't know how to live if I can't write stories, you know. It's like little kids. They're so hungry for stories. They just want you to tell stories to them all the time. So there's something innate in our psychological need to hear stories to help us make sense of things. I feel like at the moment that's going to become more important, the stories we tell. Tony McNamara, thank you so much for joining me today. I love the great. I am so excited that you're doing season two and good luck on the Emmy season. I'm pulling for you. Thanks, Jenny. But thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Co. Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis. With guest, Tony McNamara. Co-produced and edited by Jay Whiting. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. 
The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Media.